At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Sherlock Holmes is one of the most widely recognized figures of literature and pop culture. But how did the creator of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, come up with a character who has become the universal archetype of the independent detective? In his book, Arthur and Sherlock, Conan Doyle and the Creation of Holmes, my guest today explores the biography of the fictional detective by looking at the life of the real-world author. His name is Michael Sims, and we begin our conversation with the early life of Conan Doyle and his experience in medical school studying under a renowned diagnostician who helped inspire the character of Sherlock Holmes. Michael then walks us through the culture world of Victorian England and how it was the perfect environment for a character like Holmes to be birthed. He shows us how writers like Charles Dickens and Edgar Allan Poe laid the groundwork for detective fiction, how the Sherlock stories differed from theirs, and how they were initially received. We then delve into the characterization of Holmes and his crime-solving methodology before ending our conversation discussing Conan Doyle's intense interest in spiritualism and why Holmes is such a captivating figure even in the 21st century. After the show's over, check out our show it's at aom.is slash Sherlock. All right, Michael Sims, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I've been looking forward to it. So you are the author of a book called Arthur and Sherlock, Conan Doyle and the Creation of Holmes. So what's the story behind the book? Why did you feel you needed to write a biography of not only Conan Doyle, but Sherlock Holmes? Well, I felt that for most people, they're very much joined into the same story. And Conan Doyle wrote pioneer science fiction such as The Lost World. He wrote historical stuff that he himself thought was deeper and more important. You'll note, of course, that Robert Downey Jr. is not rushing to make movies of The White Company. And so Sherlock Holmes is the character that caught the global imagination and is still being reinterpreted now. And I wanted to write about the origins of that character. And whether I'm writing about scientists or children's authors such as E.B. White or whatever, Henry David Thoreau, I'm always looking at, to me, the, the origins of creativity. And so for Conan Doyle, what interested me most is what about his era, his upbringing, his own psyche, his own bent played into the creation of this iconic detective. It was great fun. Oh, yeah. And it was a lot of fun to read. So let's talk about Conan Doyle. So did he have ambitions from like a young age to be a writer? Or was that something that he kind of fell into as he became an adult? He, I don't think as a child, there's any indication that he was fantasizing about being a writer at very, very young. But then he discovered a certain skill for it when he was at boarding schools in Austria and elsewhere and in England at Sandhurst. And he was one of those kids who later talked about how he would learn to tell stories to his classmates and stop 
in the Shahrazad manner of at the key moment and make them give him a snack or something, you know. So he, he learned early how freelancing works, and so he then wanted to write. I think not out of grand ambitions, but out of the most basic and wonderful that, that what led Dylan Thomas and Ray Bradbury and many other people to write, which is he wanted to live in a certain space in his mind, and he wrote the kinds of things he loved to read. So uh, he he was telling stories as a young child. He didn't go into writing right away. In fact, he became a doctor. What was that career like for him, and how did it influence him as a writer later on? I think it influenced him greatly. He had the this sort of enlightenment excitement about what could be learned and how much was happening in the world in scientific terms. He was very interested in the paranormal, increasingly so over the years, and he famously became an active spiritualist, and he even believed in the Cottingley fairies, the two girls who claimed they had seen fairies and claimed they'd produced photographs of them, which were clearly figures cut out of a book, illustrations. But he was passionate in that regard, but he also at the same time had a strong enlightenment sort of passion for evidence and science and justice and evidence-based thinking. And so he wanted to write in the fields he knew, such as fields he loved, such as crime and adventure fiction, but he was influenced by his own training as a doctor. And then he met he famously worked under uh, a famous diagnostician in Edinburgh, uh, who, who later, about eight or ten years later, inspired Sherlock Holmes. Well, tell us about the guy. His name was Dr. Bell, right? Yes, Joseph Bell. And he met him, Doyle met him at a perfect time in about, in 1876, Doyle was 17, coming home to Edinburgh from boarding schools. And he was very much in search of a father figure. His own father was a very sad alcoholic who was doing the Edinburgh Victorian version of breaking into his children's piggy banks and in drinking furniture polish, practically. He was in bad shape. And Doyle needed someone to turn to and to emulate. And Joseph Bell was a legendary diagnostician. And this was an era in which diagnostics was sort of coming of age as a profession because there was very little diagnostic technology. So it had to be the physician as scientist, as detective, reading the physical signs and behavior of each patient very quickly to do a, a quick diagnostic tentative biography of the patient and what was going on inside the patient. And so Doyle saw that every day and Joseph Bell was legendary then. And there were other diagnosticians at the time in Austria, Germany and elsewhere who were doing this kind of thing and, and Bell was famous even among them very influential teacher and scientist and, and physician. And he would do all those things that we now all associate with Sherlock Holmes. No one can give that to a detective character now without it looking like Sherlock Holmes. But a patient would come in, Belle would glance at the coat she was carrying, realize it was too large for the child who was holding her hand and say, where did you leave the other bairn? He would look at the mud on their shoes and say, did you enjoy your walk down from Leith? And on and on and on. And he was very, very good at it, and it be, and Doyle was not the only one who wrote about these techniques that we now call Sherlockian. So there's confirmation. Bell himself became famous as Doyle talked about him in interviews, and Bell credited Doyle's imagination for most of it, but he then was asked to talk about his own techniques. And so there's a lot of 
firsthand primary information. Fascinating, wonderful, funny stuff about how Bill behaved toward patients. You're talking, you know, one of the goals of your book was to see how the time that Conan Doyle grew up in or was raised in influenced his writing. And this is, I thought it was a great, the history of, of medicine at this time. This was changing before medicine was sort of, I don't know, it was more art than science. You know, doctors kind of, well, I think this will work and give it to you. But as you said, Dr. Bell was able to see exactly, or, tr- or at least try to use a scientific method to figure out what's wrong with patients and then treat them with the scientific method. Yes, it was, it was wonderful, a wonderful era. And part of why I keep returning to the Victorian era to write about and to anthologize stories from is that so much was happening at the same time. In Conan Doyle's lifetime, anesthetics, anesthesia were, was invented. The telegraph was invented. Photography was invented. All of these things just during his lifetime. Well, just shortly before his lifetime. They came of age and really flourished during his lifetime. He was born in 1859, so they were a little bit prior to him. And so those, the ways that those played in, uh, the history of medicine was almost medieval until... Some kind of anesthesia came along, and the no, and then the germ theory of disease was late in the century. So Conan Doyle became a doctor first. What was his career like as a doctor? Was he a good doctor? Was he able to do what you know Doctor Bell did and be able to look at somebody and say, "This is what's wrong with you," or did he kind of do okay? Not not that great at it. I think he was doing okay at it. We have mostly his own account, but he didn't have time to pursue it very far because. He became successful. He had perhaps a decade of trickling short stories into magazines, and at the time, they were published anonymously, and that had become the norm at a time when it protected writers from government explosions in response to opinions expressed. But it had remained the norm even when it, in an era when the same writers were developing something like the publishing culture we have now with the kind of fame attributed to authors for their novels and their names would be on there. And so Conan Doyle kept thinking, I have to have my name on a book. I have to write a novel. And that's when he thought I should consider writing a detective story. But he had been not terribly successful as as a physician, not as poorly received as he himself joked in later interviews because there's enough factual physical documentary evidence that he was making a living in Portsmouth as a physician, but his success in writing just snowballed so quickly and so dramatically that he he soon just abandoned medicine completely. So you talk about he had he wanted to write a, a novel that was get his name out there, get him famous. And so he said, I, I'm gonna write a detective novel. Where did he get that idea? I mean, were there de- such things as like real live detectives in London who were solving crimes or was this something he kind of made up on his own? Well, he had read about detective stories. It was a genre. It wasn't very much like what we imagine now, but it was a genre. And it had been only in 1829 that a real first metropolitan police force had been formed in London. And only in 1842, I think, the detective force was was founded. And so, even police detectives came along only, what is that, 17 years or so before Doyle was born. So, real police force at the time was getting organized and established, and detectives were a phenomenon. And just before Doyle was born, Charles Dickens was writing articles about the new detective force. And so, 
Dickens later wrote about one of them in Bleak House. And so it became a genre that was catching on. There had been a lot of allegedly true crime, like now allegedly true crime, stories being published in newspapers and magazines. And that was fueling interest in the real police, real detectives. And Wilkie Collins and numerous other writers were writing about the era, writing about London and detectives at the time. And so Conan Doyle found a flourishing genre and soon practically owned it. <laughs> right. And, and you also talk about this, I thought the, the history of, of the detective or mystery genre in literature, you know, you saw it a little bit in London with Dickens writing about it, but you also talk about uh, Edgar Allan Poe played a big role in the development of mystery slash detective fiction. Yes. Poe, when he wasn't writing, you know, someone being walled up in a tomb or a, a, a cat being accidentally buried with a murder victim, he founded the detective genre as we think of it now with three short stories, especially the first one, The Murders in the Rue Morgue in 1841, published in an American magazine that he was himself at the time editing, which is, I'm sure, a very handy writer. And he created C. Auguste Dupin. And it was it was Poe, so it was filled with gothic trappings. But this was a character who was an amateur, and it launched this whole notion that you see all the way through Miss Marple and everybody else, this very curious notion that somebody who lives in a little village in England, or in this case, Dupin in Paris, happens to have, is almost born with a genius-level ability to solve crimes, which is a ludicrous fantasy, but often very entertaining. And Dupin was a character who was holding forth a lot and his about his intelligence and his ability in reading people. And the nameless narrator was very admiring. He, he made Watson look cold-hearted by comparison because he was so admiring of the detective. But Poe had not witnessed what Conan Doyle had. Poe was making this up as, an, in a sense, a kind of extension of notions of logic into crime and everyday life. And he hadn't seen anyone do this. And so when Conan Doyle decided he wanted to do this, he thought of Joseph Bell and he thought, how can I, he didn't consciously do this, but he, what he wound up doing was combining Dupin and other detectives of the era and Joseph Bell. And so Conan Doyle had examples. He showed us very convincingly again and again, how Sherlock Holmes was making these observations. And we'll we'll talk about this deductive process used by Sherlock Holmes. It's famous. So let's talk about how Doyle, Conan Doyle, decided to make Sherlock Holmes different. So he combined a bunch of different detectives that were sort of famous and Bell. But what set what set Sherlock Holmes apart from everyone else? Why did Sherlock Holmes like capture the imagination of not only England but the world really fast, really quickly? I think in part that he's very protean sort of character. He has lots of different factors playing into him. And you can see that. I don't mean to jump way ahead, but you can see what appealed to people then and how he's been represented in our own era. That elementary, the TV show, would emphasize addiction. Benedict Cumberbatch's version would emphasize the autistic aspect. Robert Downey Jr. emphasizes the physicality, the running, the chasing, the, the, the bare-handed, bare-knuckle fisticuffs. And so all of those factors were in there, and he was very much an enlightenment hero in that he believed in justice above and beyond the legal system. He had, so he had a strong sense of that he knew best, and I think a lot of readers wanted that in a hero and identified with it. He was courageous, and he was brilliant. He was, he was very much 
detective as scientist, and it was an era that believed very strongly in science and the progressions and the the ability of science to help us understand the world, to help us reduce the thousand natural shocks that flesh is there to to maybe a manageable hundred. And so on and on, science was in that era. It wasn't yet creating atomic bombs and and mustard gas, which was around the corner in World War One and Two, but it was still very much an optimistic force and Conan Doyle saw it that way in many ways and Sherlock Holmes I think embodied that. Yeah, he's almost like a superhero today, like a Marvel comic character. He really is and I think he is very often, even an informal survey of my friends indicated that he's perhaps most popular with people who also love superhero movies and things like that and it's interesting that Robert Downey Jr. portrays one of the most popular superheroes and the most popular detective in alternating movies for a while there. So uh, he gets the idea for Sherlock Holmes. What was the first novel that he published? Or you know, was it a short story that came out first, or did he go right to a novel with Sherlock Holmes? He first did uh, a novel, A Study in Scarlet. And at the time, A Study in a Certain Color was a kind of style of title used by rather more decadent modern kinds of writers. And so there was a little bit of a a whiff of decadence in the title. And then and then how I mean what was the response? What did it gain like a lot of critical acclaim? Was it popular right away? The first two novels were A Study in Scarlet and The Sign of the Four. And those the first one got some notice not as much as one might, ima- might imagine now. The second one got more, but what really caught on is when he was commissioned to write a, a series of a dozen short stories, the ones that now are published as and were then published as The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And that's the title of the, f- the very first collection of 12. And those caught on. Now, they were a little bit of a hard sell in the U.S. at first because they weren't the standard periodical length. And in a sense, it's as if the magazines and newspapers at the time were like the TV programs of, say, the 1970s and 80s, prior to other options that we have now, cable and digital and everything else. And so they were the primary form of entertainment. And Conan Doyle wanted to write for that market, but he didn't usually write within exactly the specifications. And so editors had to be talked into trying these, trying to syndicate them and, and reprint them in their periodicals. And gradually they caught on. Editors themselves became enthusiastic, enthusiastic readers and enthusiastic in promoting them. And it gradually grew into a phenomenon in which which led Arthur Conan Doyle to famously write a letter to his beloved mother, I think Sherlock is catching on. <laughs> the great understatement in literary history. And another thing I didn't know about the Holmes series was that there wasn't a lot of continuity between the stories, right? It was just, each story was sort of like a self-contained world. And sometimes you wouldn't even, he wouldn't even reference things that happened in previous stories or he'd like contradict something that happened in a previous story. But for some reason that, for some reason that worked for him. Yes, he was, again, I think that's, and this is hardly an iconoclastic view. I think the Sherlock Holmes work is very much his best work and he did not think it was deep enough but what he was doing was writing out of his true essential self which from my point of view in reading a vast amount about him and writing about him his essential self was adolescent he was basically he remained it seems to me pretty much a 14 year old boy who wanted to read about an adventure 
and he wanted to write about an adventure. And so he was doing, I think, a lot better with Sherlock Holmes than he realized, but he wasn't one to take them seriously so that famously, infamously, or whatever, notoriously, he forgot where Watson's war wound was. And it might be in his shoulder in one story and in his leg in the next. Watson's name was from the very first page established as John, but in one of the short stories, his wife calls him James, and on and on, a number of things like that. And the lack of continuity was kind of a great idea because there had been a lot of serialization of novels, which most famously Dickens had been had built his whole reputation on that and his worldwide fame. And so magazines would have to commit to the entire novel. They'd have to sign a contract. They couldn't run a piece of it. And so there were lots of things. And the idea was, if you're caught up in this story, you will go and get the next issue. But if you're not, there's nothing to attract you. And so Doyle was very smart about, let's have self-contained stories. And we see this, the effect of this, and, and the value of this all the way through TV series until our own era when TV series usually evolve. Characters tend to grow and change and evolve. And in 1970, say, when I was 12, a TV show, what was on then? I don't know, uh, Columbo? It was hardly going to evolve from episode to episode, or Mannix or something like that. And so that was a kind of stroke of genius, and it became the norm in detective stories, that each one is like a modular unit that can, can be inserted into your brain at any point. It's a great idea. No, if there were like literary forms or blogs back then, I bet it'd be driving people nuts. They'd be like, what is, what is canon? What is Watson's real name? They'd have debates about it. Like people have debates about stuff now. Oh, yes. And it would be all over Twitter and it would be nonstop. And even now among the Baker Street Irregulars, who are many of my friends are Baker Street Irregulars. I'm not t- actually a member. I've been their guest speaker and so on. And a lot of my friends are there. And they remind me that the word fan is a shortened form of fanatic. That the Baker Street Irregulars to this day are arguing about those things. <laughs> what are the Baker Street Irregulars? Are just fans of Sherlock Holmes? Oh, yes. That's the international organization of fans of Sherlock Holmes. In England, there's the Sherlock Holmes Society, but both are really international. And the Baker Street Irregulars was Holmes's nickname in the second novel, I think it is, for the street urchins that he used to gather information on people because they were invisible on the street. And he said, this is the Baker Street Irregular Force regular police force and so the fans as early as about right about a hundred years ago the fans began forming this organization the baker street irregulars to study and celebrate sherlock holmes in the many incarnations we're gonna take a quick break for your words from our sponsors wedding season is coming up and if you are preparing for the big day i know wedding planning can be really intimidating but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. 
When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So let's talk about his uh, detective process. So you mentioned he had his, his uh, sources that he would go to, but the thing that made him famous was that he would actually walk people through, walk the reader through how he came to his conclusion. And we, we typically call this like the deductive process of Sherlock Holmes, but it, was this really deduction or was this induction? I'm always confused by that. I think it was technically induction most of the time. He would do both. Deduction is inferring a general law from particular instances, 
and so that you might look at all the little clues and build up a, a larger picture. And particular instances that you observe can lead to a general law or principle in induction. And so the two are very related, and there's also a version called adduction that is the merging of them and the whole idea that all of these forms of observing are playing into each other and are tentative in their assumptions that have to be constantly refreshed by incoming facts. And that's what I love most about, I think, detective stories aesthetically. And it's the respect for adjusting your theories for incoming facts. And it's what I like most about the scientific method as a way of thinking. It's or even politics or anything else. It's like, how about some evidence-based decision-making? And you realize how late that came along as an idea in history. Right. <laughs> Before that, it's like, whatever. And it's amazing, this thing, you know, this sort of, I guess you can call it, we can call it a trope that, you know, Conan Doyle used of like Holmes explaining how he came to his conclusion. Like you see this through the rest of the detective genre. You see it in uh, movies today. Like, I mean, Clue is like, like, remember that movie Clue from the 80s? Yes. It's at the end. They explain everything that goes... Like everything is tied up with a nice bow, and that you can trace that all the way back to Sherlock Holmes. And I think that's part of the great aesthetic pleasure of the detective genre is you have a tentative narrative that you're reading, you're you're witnessing it as it unfolds, and then you realize there are several tentative narratives being tossed around. But the, at the end, everything that you have experienced gets reconfigured into what we'll call the actual story, and so. There's a great pleasure in that on a literary, critical kind of level. But there's so many versions of it. As you said about Sherlock Holmes going out and, and finding out everything, he was very much someone who did it all himself. And then Agatha Christie could come along with Hercule Poirot, and I think the first one was in, 18, in 1920. And he's sort of decrying this kind of scurrying around on your knees with a magnifying glass and saying, it's about the little gray cell as Hastings. And then Nero Wolf comes along. And sends Archie Goodwin out to do the legwork, but someone still has to do the legwork. And Nero Wolf can sit at home theorizing. And so I love that Sherlock Holmes has, to me, the three sexiest words in the English language, I work alone, the sexiest phrase in the English language. And Sherlock Holmes very much did. And he, he just did everything himself. And I think that combining of what he had seen in Joseph Bell, the notion of a sort of romantic action hero and an Enlightenment thinker, I don't think Conan Doyle had any idea he was merging three vibrant strands of literary history into one thing right there. And part of the process of Holmes being able to do his deduction or induction was observing, observing things that other people's, people didn't see. And he, in fact, you know, Sherlock Holmes, like Conan Doyle would have Sherlock Holmes say things like that. Like, I, I actually observe what other people merely see. Like He made a distinction between those two things. Yes, and I think that's very helpful. For example, I think about it when I'm driving around on a street. I'm, I see the other cars, but my mind is on sort of radar mode of I simply am avoiding large objects. I don't really observe the other cars the way my brother does who knows a lot about cars. And so I think Holmes demonstrates that kind of thing again and again, and he says... Well, I've written a monograph on cigar and cigarette ash. Really, nothing is more helpful than being able to tell them apart. And now, of course, we have specialists for all those things. Even on Vera, the wonderful TV series Vera, if they need that kind of information, they just cut to a 45-second scene with an expert. And so 
there weren't specialists in these corners at the time. And so Sherlock Holmes did it all himself. And when in the very first part of the first book, A Study in Scarlet, Watson is recently invalided from the Afghan war. He is looking for an inexpensive place to stay in London. And he, a mutual friend, introduces him to Sherlock Holmes, who is a medical student at the time and is, do, was, well, is doing special research at the medical school on how far bruises can be shown in a body after death. So he's doing his own forensic pathology experiments. In other words, he's just about the creepiest guy you could ever imagine actually meeting in the real world. Well, let's talk about Watson. Like, what role did Watson play in the home stories? Like, did he, was he an important character? I think Watson was a great invention. And again, to contrast Edgar Allan Poe, his narrator of the Dupin stories was nameless and existed entirely to do variations on, gee whiz, you're a genius. And Watson is skeptical. He says, reader, I think of all men, I must be the most long-suffering. I mean, he sort of complains like a roommate or a husband uh, or a wife. He serves as the bridge between our skepticism about genius and the genius. And so that gives us a sense of, okay, yeah, I'm not just painting a superhero here. I understand this is weird. And it gives Sherlock Holmes a reason to hold forth. And so I think those are great. And in the early movies, like Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce's Dr. Watson was sort of a, a bumbling lapdog almost at times. And in the stories, Watson is actually quite sharp, very skeptical of Holmes, and very loyal and quick to put a gun in his pocket if they need to run out to do something. And so I think Watson, in that regard, is almost as protean a character as Holmes, by which I mean that he can be represented through many different aspects. And so you see you know, Martin Freeman's version on Sherlock versus Jude Law's version. And so all of those things are in there. In the original stories, Watson is smart, loyal, active, he was a soldier until 10 minutes before Sherlock Holmes met him, practically. And so, these are the kinds of things that make Watson an ideal narrator. And, of course, Doyle himself had a very quick, lively style filled with texture and detail and atmosphere. And without realizing it, he created a time machine, a time capsule of the late Victorian era. So, one of the things that, one of the reasons why Sherlock Holmes has become such an iconic figure, he's got a cool uniform, at least what we think is his uniform, which is, <laughs> yeah. right, it's the skinny guy, usually it's a skinny guy with a magnifying glass, wearing the deer stalker hat, smoking a pipe. Now, here's the question, did Conan Doyle ever describe his home looking like that? He did. He did not describe the deer stalker. An illustrator added that early on. And the illustrator didn't understand that the deerstalker was a country thing. So some illustrators would, can, would show Sherlock Holmes wearing it at a pub in London where he would just look like a rube. And so those are little things that gradually were added on. The skinniness is several factors playing into that. I think one is that he smoked constantly. A 221B Baker Street was constantly filled with smoke. And he famously kept his fierce Turkish tobacco in a slipper on the mantle. And so he was also, he, whenever he was bored, he would inject himself with a cocaine solution. And so that was a very common notion at the time that various uh, opium dens were no more illegal than, you know, the, the nearest bar here at the time. And they were seen as decadent 
epicenters of exploitation, but they weren't illegal. And so I think all those factors play into it. And also something we forget and something the movies tend to not pay much attention to. Conan Doyle was in his 20s when he created Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. And all the evidence in the stories, the original stuff, indicates that he conceived the detective and his sidekick as pretty much in their late 20s or no more than 30 years old. And that's not how they're usually portrayed. No, yeah, they're always portrayed older. And speaking of the drug use, that's something I always forget about the Holmes stories, that you know, he would shoot up cocaine. But that, again, it's, it's, as you talked about, the influence of the 19th century, the Victorian area had, had on the, these Holmes stories, that was a common thing. People did. They did heroin. They did cocaine. This was like the rise of like pharmaceuticals and drugs like this that are no longer pharmaceuticals. Yes, and again, throughout history, each individual human being has always been physician's guinea pig. I mean, we're, we're all that, that. A doctor will say to you, well, let's try this for two weeks. And the unspoken thing is, if it doesn't kill you, we'll, we'll raise the dosage or try something else. And if it does kill you, well, you know, I'm insured. And so I think the cocaine aspect is interesting. I picked up, I don't collect in any serious way the Sherlock Holmes stuff. But I usually, if I see a different edition, I'll pick it up and look at it. I picked up one from the 70s. That was a children's book edition of the second book, The Sign of the Four. And it opens with, the book normally opens with Sherlock Holmes stabbing himself with a needle with a cocaine solution. And that was completely taken out of the 70s children's book version. And it's just not something we wanted to associate with heroes at the time. Right. Yeah, that would be funny if they left that in there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He's like, oh, okay. So you mentioned earlier... Conan Doyle famously got involved with spiritualism. I think it's an aspect of, I guess, 19th century history in in England, as well as in America, that often people forget about. Can you tell us about the spiritualist movement? And then how did Conan Doyle get involved with it? And did it influence his work at all? Conan Doyle very much got involved with it. And the spiritualist movement, it doesn't seem this way to us now, but originally at the time, it was seen as rather scientific evidence of an afterlife. It wasn't just belief it was spirits are communicating with us and we can take these ectoplasmic spirit photos we can communicate with them through knocking out a table or whatever in the dark and this is was gullible figures such as doyle who very much missed his mother when she died who who lost his son in world war 1 and was desperately eager to remain in touch with both of them spiritualists were via seances and other things, preying upon the gullible and the grieving. And as someone said about Conan Doyle in this regard, regarding spiritualism, he was no Sherlock Holmes. And it's really one of the weird contradictions between author and character. There's even a story in which Sherlock Holmes says, no ghosts need apply, Watson. This agency stands with its feet planted firmly on the ground. And to the very end, Sherlock Holmes remains an icon of rational investigation. And all the time, Conan Doyle is steadily becoming more and more obsessed with and preoccupied with spiritualism. And it began in the 1840s with the Fox sisters in upstate New York and the idea that spirits were communicating with them. And really, one of them had a very flexible toe joint, frankly. I mean, there's tons of evidence for this. And she would tap it on the hollow floor underneath the table, and it would resonate throughout the room. And 
her most commercial-minded sister said, let's take this toe snap and show on the road, basically. And they began to make a lot of money, and they became the headliners and the launchers of the spiritualist movement. And so, it was very well-established form of con game by the time that Conan Doyle was, was involved in it. And everyone was saying, this is clearly crap, and Conan Doyle was saying, this is clearly a channel to the afterlife. But then, this is kind of interesting, so this how different things can connect during this time. So Conan Doyle was actually friends with Houdini, Harry Houdini, the magician. But Harry Houdini was like the great debunker of spiritualism. Yes, there's a wonderful uh, encounter between them. They became friends. And Conan Doyle was so, by this time, besotted, it seems to me, and I admit I'm beyond skeptical, with spiritualism. He actually said to Houdini, why do you pretend this is all a matter of gimmickry when clearly you dematerialize and rematerialize somewhere else? And Houdini is offering to show him how he does this, and Conan Doyle is going, I don't know why you have to pretend you don't have this deep spiritual power. So it's part of the fun of my book was concentrating on the creation of Sherlock Holmes, and I carry the book only to where Sherlock is really hugely successful. I don't carry it on through to home to Doyle famously getting tired of Holmes and killing him off the Reichenbach Falls and all that sort of thing. And I don't go into the spiritualism other than the very beginnings of it. And that's fun for me because I find there are many great full-length biographies, such as Andrew Lysett's about uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, but I would find exploring his spiritualism in depth maddening, <laughs> Frank, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> Because it just wouldn't make sense to you? Like, it'd just be too much. Like, how can you have this character Sherlock Holmes? And then how could you be like this? Yes, yes. It just seems so gullible. And it's demonstrably false in, a, in a, so many directions again and again, things that he would praise, such as those fa- fairy photos that those girls did at the little village of Cottingley. And Doyle just, once he made up his mind, it was like, I once had a, a, an uncle who could find a biblical prediction for absolutely anything that had happened anywhere in the past hundred years, thousand years of the last week. And well, of course he could. He just didn't need any evidence. He had, his belief grew like as hardy as a weed. It could grow in any environment. And I think Arthur Conan Doyle's credulity and gullibility in this corner were the same. He didn't use the same kind of thinking for those at all. So why do you think this like 19th century character from England still like, captivates people today like we're making movies about him there's a tv show about him that's popular like what is it about sherlock holmes that people still want to like read stories or watch movies about him i think in part and of course i don't mean to be the i'm not an expert on this kind of phenomenon i'm interested in those aspects of celebrity culture that play into a fictional creation becoming a household name but I'm by no means an expert in it. And I think that Holmes himself, again, is such a protean figure, one who has so many facets that different incarnations can emphasize different aspects of it. And he's also, and the notion, I think once people started the idea that let's just, let's modernize Holmes, let's recreate Holmes, let's do this, let's do that. Was it Steven Spielberg who did the young Sherlock Holmes movie 30 oh, years yeah. ago or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just everywhere. And so now there's a whole, in a sense, a giant universe. There's a small community of like an asteroid 
that's actually the stuff Arthur Conan Doyle wrote about Sherlock Holmes. And there's an entire solar system of everything else. The movies, the pastiches of every kind. And some of those are good. Some are funny. Some are very smart. Some are an, a sort of an attempt, just a pure homage to resurrect the style. And Conan Doyle was a very good writer. He was very lively, very vivid. And Holmes is a heroic figure who is, this is important to me, and it may be in just my own personal bent, I'm very skeptical of authorities and of legal entities and the notion of the state and all these things. And Sherlock Holmes was also. So that even growing up, I was always interested in the private eyes, not in the cops. And Sherlock Holmes is skeptical about the police force, as many Londoners were at the time. When they were first founded in 1829, people were worried about how this would manifest itself. They had seen the French military police across the channel cause all kinds of trouble and invasions of privacy and everything else. And so people were skeptical about that, but they realized they needed a metropolitan police force of some kind. Around early 1840s, when the detective bureau was formed, there was a huge uproar that these plain clothes people were intended to spy on everyday citizens and more than anything else. And so there's had been long been suspicion and mockery about these kinds of characters. And so Conan Doyle played into that with a very sarcastic Sherlock Holmes. And he even, Doyle loved Emile Gavreau, the French writer who created Monsieur Lecoq, a wonderful character that Conan Doyle imitated a lot. And he admired so many of these people, but he deliberately had Sherlock Holmes mock them in the stories. Well, you know, this is the Art of Manliness podcast. And I think one of the reasons why Holmes is such a popular figure and he's sort of become like an icon of manliness as well as with other detectives, that point you talked about, like they work outside of the system, right? They're like, uh, they're almost like an outlaw, but they're trying to do good. Yes. And I think that everybody, every man has to form his own definition of what strikes him as manly or whether he needs that definition. But to me, that independence and that notion of a a higher justice than the organization that's just speaking to you or the organization that has all kinds of built-in biases or whatever, that that in itself is about as strong and independent a move as anyone can make. And you see it, I see it enacted in politics right now that the strongest and freest place to be is activism slightly outside the political circle so that you know it from the inside, but you're not controlled by it. And Sherlock Holmes was that way. He knew all the cops. He knew the, the, some of the burgeoning diagnosticians, the, the notion of pathology that was beginning to develop. But he himself was free of all of it. And he defined himself as the world's first independent consulting detective. So the people with their problems would come to him, not to an institution. Well, Michael, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been great fun. My guest today was Michael Sims. He's the author of the book, Arthur and Sherlock. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Sherlock, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives over 
almost there's almost 600 episodes there, as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLIUS for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you not to listen to the AWIN Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.